One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. My guest today is Imran Ahmed. Imran is the founder of The Business of Fashion, a website that aims to provide informed, analytical and opinionated perspectives on both the creative and business sides of the fashion industry. Since its founding on Imran's sofa back in 2007, Business of Fashion has gone on to gain investment and is now the hub for a number of initiatives like the Fashion 500, BOF Careers and BOF Education that have permeated the fashion industry and solidified BOF as an influential brand, not just here in London, but worldwide. To talk to us about how he built the business and what fellow entrepreneurs and aspiring fashion designers can do to stand out, Imran, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you? I'm I'm great, yeah, as always. Uh, you just told me your company is at 75 people now, so it's grown a hell of a lot since uh, yeah, I last came and visited. Yeah, we're... Um... We are in London, Shanghai, and New York, uh, and we've taken over two floors of our building at this stage. Um, there's a, sometimes a joke that we'll take over the whole building uh, eventually, but um, yeah, no, it's it's grown, you know, substantially over the past few years. I was just talking to you then that I, I hadn't managed to kind of keep up with the news that you'd got an MBE. And I know you say that you don't like to sh- to shout about it, but that's such an achievement. I mean, how did how did that come about, and what's what's that like uh, as a, as a, a thing to experience? It's kind of surreal. Um, you get a little letter in the post, completely out of the blue, and I received my letter in November of two thousand sixteen, and we were literally two weeks away from our biggest event of the year, which is our conference, which we call Voices. And my assistant, Andres, came kind of running. He opens all the posts, so he came running into the into my office, and he was, like, beaming. <laughs> I'll never forget the look on his face. And he just handed this letter over to me. And I read it, and I only had, a, like, a few minutes to really soak in what it said. Because I I had no idea. I mean, they manage the process very secretly. And you have to keep it a secret for a few months until they give you a date when you go to Buckingham Palace. So for those few months, I had to, you know, it's just me and Andres and, you know, my family that knew. And you have to keep it a secret. So I couldn't tell anybody. And then all of a sudden, this announcement happens on um, New Year's Eve or New Year's Eve day, the New Year's honors list. And then everybody knows. Um but it's the whole thing is surreal and very special. And my family was there, um, you know, sitting and watching in Arcelon. Our COO was yep. there, um, <laughs> and they were all strong. sitting there in the front row. And um, it felt, it felt, you know, when you're on a journey like this, you don't necessarily have a lot of moments to step back and take stock. Um, but I felt immense gratitude for having had the experience that led me to that moment. And it really forced me to think a lot about um, everything that had happened and how it happened. And there were certainly, as I'm sure we'll discuss, ups and downs along the way. But, you know, it's a very, very special experience. I think, yeah, I can't imagine what that would be like at all. And just to kind of go from that experience, which is where you are today to some degree and, and how far you've come, going right back to... Imran as a child like I don't think this is stuff that people really ask you very often and what was life like for you way way back when when you first started out in life you know where did it all begin well it all began in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Canada I was born in Calgary um, which is probably best known for the Calgary Stampede which they bill as the greatest outdoor show on earth which is basically an excuse for the entire city to get drunk every day for 10 days in a row and go and watch rodeos and 
uh, and also known for the 1988 Winter Olympics. Um, and not much else, really. I mean, Calgary is a really small city. It's about, when I was growing up, it was 700,000 people. It's a really nice place to grow up. And I had a really happy, um, healthy, fortunate childhood. I had so many experiences growing up. My, my parents were very much into kind of exposing me to everything. So, you know, I did accordion and I did soccer and I did or football and I did um, <laughs> musical theater and I did junior achievement and I did, you know, public speaking. I, yeah, I did everything. I was I was I was one of those kids who has like a, had a very scheduled life. You know, every evening there was some extracurricular activity and I was very nerdy. I used to get up at like five in the morning to study just because I was just very, I was a very motivated kid. I don't know what my parents did. Um, <laughs> motivated kid, you're still motivated to this day. I am still motivated. That, that is true. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a very nice childhood. I think probably um, for me, though, like a defining moment for me was when I left Calgary because I lived there for 18 years. I studied there. I lived there my whole life until I was 18. And then I moved to Montreal. And... Uh, you know, Montreal is kind of like the polar opposite of Calgary. It's a French-speaking city. Calgary is English-speaking. Montreal is like, you know, for by Canadian standards, a city of like three and a half or four million people. So it's quite a big city. It's a very sophisticated cultural city. Um, it is a student town. There's like 300,000 university students or something like that. Um, it's vibrant. It has like an incredible nightlife it has an incredible culinary scene. It has an incredible art scene. Um, it has one of the biggest um, comedy festivals, one of the biggest jazz festivals. I mean, just life in Montreal was constantly stimulating. And that's really where I caught the fashion bug because people in Montreal just have an incredible sense of style. And um, in Montreal, you know, it's historically been the capital or one of the, you know, one of the two cities where the Canadian fashion industry is based. So I started meeting people even back then who were involved with fashion. So when I was growing up in Calgary, as I was mentioning earlier, I grew up watching this show called Fashion File on TV, <laughs> and that was my only window into fashion. But in Montreal, there are proper fashion companies. There's a kind of culture around fashion. And when I was in university, I organized a fashion show, an AIDS benefit fashion show, with a few fellow students, and that was like really my first exposure. I, I wanted to talk about that because obviously you went to Harvard Business School, so to to do that would have been quite a culture shock, I imagine, for for what you were the subject you went into to study versus what you ended up doing there, putting on the show. Yeah, so in in Montreal, I was at McGill University, and I was studying business, and Harvard came a few years later. But yeah, I mean, the. Um, there was no real expectation or even concept that I could ever work in an industry like the fashion business. I mean, everyone that I went to university with, they would end up in New York or London or Paris or you know, Toronto in investment banking or management consulting. You know, I ended up staying in Montreal and becoming a management consultant. There I just I couldn't even conceive of a path to work in the fashion business. It just it didn't even seem like an option. So, yeah, I didn't even consider it, really. I think it's nice to know that there was that insight there before actually you, the conception of BOF that you were interested in, in fashion. And obviously, prior to BOF becoming the thing it is today, you, uh, I believe that you worked on it for six years from your sofa here in London. And during that time, what was the thing that actually motivated you to do that? I mean, did you see it as a potential business opportunity in the future or were you doing it just for the love of it at the time? I mean, at the very beginning, there was absolutely no conception that it would be possible for it to be a business because it's hard to imagine now because <clears throat> you really have to remove a lot of things that we all know now from your head. So you have to assume there's no social media and you have to assume that like everyone's still reading, you know, print publications. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that have changed in the world over the last 11 years since I first started writing that you wouldn't even be able to conceive of now. Um, if you were, you know, 
putting yourself in those shoes back then. But of course, over time, you know, as the world was changing, as media was changing, as the fashion industry was changing, and as there began to be a, a response, a very positive, you know, albeit very small community of people that were, you know, loyally coming to this blog, you know, every day. Um, that's what motivated me. So, it was like the, you know, I used to track, I still track analytics very, very, very carefully. And the feedback from the community, both quantitatively through their loyalty and frequency of visits, but also qualitatively through the comments they would leave and eventually through the things that they would say on social media, like it was the feedback from the community that really motivated me. So I didn't really have a goal. What, what was your commitment level back then? I, I find it really hard to imagine myself starting a blog and then putting three years of, of day in, day out time into it without, you know, was it was it that at the start or did you put one post out a week? And I'm trying to put it into a realistic expectation of what people actually do before these things blow up. Yeah, I mean, initially it was like one or two articles a week. Um, and I would write when I had an interest in it's, something. It, it's interesting that you even position it as an article as opposed to a post. Yeah, you, because, you know, people used to tell me, oh, you're writing a blog, so everything needs to be less than 300 words. And I just, eventually what happened is, like, I would I would write when I had something in my head that I wanted to get out. So, like, the the motivation to do it came from having an idea that I wanted to explore. And oftentimes I would get to 300 words and I was only getting started. So I liked, I liked the limitlessness of, of writing online. And I never thought about it as posts. I always thought, thought of them as articles because ideally they would have like a complete thought or question that it was being was being explored where you'd arrive to a natural conclusion or insight. Um, and that's not a post for me. Yeah. No, it's interesting when I read the about what what is the business of fashion, it said it's about having informed opinions. And so these things aren't just talking about what's happening. You're, you're trying to have a perspective. Exactly. I mean, and I think that idea of taking a position and having a point of view and having an insight, that remains a core, identifiable, essential part of the DNA of BOF today. I've got two questions that I'm going to merge into one. Obviously, prior to starting BOF, you were also a consultant at McKinsey, uh, which is a very respected consultancy firm. And you received investment back in 2013. And what I feel was slightly unusual about that was that to date, to that point in time, you hadn't earned any money through the site. Obviously, it showed you had traction. You were going through this huge transition where you're moving out of a company where you're earning, I imagine, good money and then trying to convince investors that this thing's worth investing in with just the traction of an audience but no no money there. I'm interested to know how, you know, was there turmoil in making that transition in terms of uh, the finances? How long did it take for you to ride that dip? And uh, what was your pitch when you were talking to investors in terms of why this thing was going to work? Probably the biggest thing that had to change was my mindset. I mean, there was a mindset mindset shift that happened um, from leaving McKinsey to becoming an independent consultant, which is what I did for the first six years that I wrote BOF. I you know, wasn't making money from the blog. I was making money by giving advice to people. Uh, and the mindset shift that took place from leaving McKinsey to starting my own thing, you know, and I started one company, by the way, that only lasted eight months and didn't work, was... Was that, was that the fund? Yeah. And the that mindset shift was really about becoming comfortable with taking risks and being comfortable with ambiguity. So if you're in a place like McKinsey, they basically paint a career path for you that could, you know, outline the next 25 years of your life. But being an entrepreneur, operating on your own, building something from scratch, I mean, your career path is like the next month. And that that was a fundamental shift. 
And then the next shift that I had to take from a mindset standpoint is this thing that I had nurtured, you know, lovingly, obsessively, regularly, diligently from my sofa in my apartment in the evenings as a side project. I had to make a mindset shift that actually this was no longer something I was doing just for love. This is something I was doing also because I believed that there was a business opportunity. And, you know, the initial decision to shift my focus 100% to BOF, it wasn't really kind of characterized by turmoil, but it really did require like a radical shift in the way I thought about things. And, um, of course, if investors are going to back you, they really need to buy into this vision or this idea that you had. So I had to like squirrel away for a few months you know what happened was basically a few investors reached out to me at the same time and it made me realize that there was clearly something here that people thought might have some kind of value and obviously I had to appreciate that but then you know no one's just going to throw money at you based on like a gut instinct and you know we were trying to raise a few million dollars so I really need to go away and and think about it and write a business plan. And meanwhile, I'm trying to run, you know, the rest of my life and keep everything else going while also having all these meetings and thinking about, you know, where where could I take it? What's the vision? So it was a it wasn't like turmoil, but it was a you know, a really, really radical change in the way I was thinking about. BOF. It was no more my pet project. It was going to be, if it was going to be something I was going to do 100% of the time, and if I was going to take other people's money and, and try to build something, and if I was going to hire a team of people, then the most important thing was that I had to really, really believe in it. Talking about turning this thing from a, a, a project into a business, I was very, very fortunate to be around in a kind of early part for a, for, a, for a very short period of time. But some of the, my fond memories at that time, one of them was the first banner ad that went up on the website and kind of the feeling of, of someone's going to pay us for this banner ad. Yeah. And also being, I'm wet behind the ears when it comes to the fashion industry and there's, there's no denying that, but being in the room when you're conjuring up this idea of the Fashion 500 and... Um, it's a real fly on the wall experience for me because you know I didn't understand a lot of it, but in hindsight, I look back at it and go, "Wow, I was part of something that was quite incredible." Um, just talking about business in general and how you've t- you flipped this round. One part of of your business model is to charge people to get access to the information. This is something that a lot of businesses have struggled with, and I'm just wondering, you know, how has that experience been for you? Is there been things you've had to iterate and? the value proposition to people that are coming to the website, how has that changed and adapted? Well, probably the biggest challenge, you know, if you've been giving something away for free for almost 10 years, and then all of a sudden you turn to those people and you say, um, sorry, you know, you need to pay now. Um, there was a big communication strategy around, you know, how we were going to explain that rationale to our community. And basically, that was, you know, one critical element. A second critical element was thinking about, well, what are these people actually paying for? You know, what is the value proposition we're going to offer? And why do we think that is valuable? You know, if it's a value proposition, it's got to be valuable. And then the third was, okay, if we're going to do this, if this is going to be how we're going to position it, you know, how do we implement it? And you know, as always at BOF, you know, I don't, I don't really surround myself with people who just say yes. I mean, there was a lot of rigorous debate about this decision to move towards a subscription model. And initially, there was a lot of pushback from the team. And it was one of those moments, I feel really grateful to have people that really challenge me and, you know, push me back and say, well, you know, have you looked at the data? Do you understand what the conversion rates are on a paywall? Have you seen this data on, you know, what renewal rates are like? Do you understand what it's going to take from an investment standpoint in order to build out this product? You know, we're still in a growth phase. How's this going to impact our top line growth? I mean, 
people had all the right questions. And if we weren't asking ourselves those questions and coming up with cogent, well-thought-out responses as to why and what we were going to do, um, we wouldn't have had the launch, the successful launch that we had. And what, what ended up happening was we explained to our community in advance this was going to happen. We had many, many, many thousands of people sign up even before the paywall went up. And since then, that business has continued to perform extremely well. And it's only because we had that inner debate as a team and we really, you know, we really kicked things around. We really took it quite seriously. And now it's, you know, a very, very significant part of our business. It's only been around for one year. It's already, you know, the single biggest revenue part of our business. Um, I only see huge opportunities for it to continue to grow. And it's become a real point of pride for our team that actually what it really enables us to do is, one, it, it, it gave us all a confidence boost because, you know, we always intuitively knew from the feedback and from the things that people would say and the comments that, would be, that people would leave that BOF had become an integral part of the professional habit of the people in the fashion industry. But when people pay for something... You know, when, when people shell out their own hard-earned money or the, or the money of their companies for a product, then you know it's valuable. And I think that was a real confidence booster for all of us. You know, the, the team was just, we were all, like, we all played this game in the office where we all predicted how many people would sign up. And even the person who was the most optimistic had vastly underestimated <laughs> um, where we ended up. Um, uh, going in the end. So it's been a great thing for us. It it is fascinating because you're not just competing with other fashion sites, you're competing with people's disposable income that they could spend on Netflix or Amazon Prime or any of these services which are kind of repeat payments. But also, I guess, in the fashion industry, which the thing which is a little bit unique about it is that people who heavily engage in fashion tend to have some form of disposable income. And the people that you target, because it's business-centric, you probably do get a lot of uh, businesses that kind of pay for that subscription. And so uh, imagine that you're an entrepreneur starting out today. Do you think without that 10 years of audience building and without the product being business-centric that you would have had half as good a launch as, as you have had? Yeah, I mean, you asked earlier, and I think maybe I didn't answer this part of your question, like what were the investors investing in? in that first stage. And what they were investing in, you know, even though there wasn't a business model in place, was there was a brand that people trusted um, that really meant something to people. Um, it wasn't a huge group of people, but it was meaningful enough to a, a, a critical mass of people. And building a brand in, an, in the noisy digital age that we live in is very, very hard. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was there was a built-in audience. You know, we, a community of people around the world who are turning to this thing out of habit every day. And that's a proof of concept. You know, that's, you know, what people call product market fit, um, where you have something that clearly people are interested in that they're willing to pay for. And so in the in the experiment that was, you know, that we launched 11 years ago now, um, by the time the investors came around six years later, there was a real track record. There was a real audience. There was a real um, brand. And, you know, having all of that in our back pocket when we launch a subscription service, I mean, of course, that was helpful. You know, without that, no, of course, we wouldn't have had the same success. It was, you know, it's this kind of this audience building, trust building, brand building that had been going on for 10 years. Digging into that a little bit, the final question I had with regards to the business is you're very aware as a, as a business individual that one thing you're trying to do when you're trying to scale is replace yourself to some degree. And I think you've done a fantastic job of building leverage, not just for BOF as a brand, but as for yourself, which obviously helps you when you come to communicate with these individuals who are oftentimes very hard to get hold of. Um, What do you think BOF is without you? That's a really good question. 
Um, well, what I hope is that you know, there's certain values and principles and ideas that sit at the very heart of BOF, that are part of the DNA of the company. And yes, a lot of those things flow directly from me. Um, there are values at BOF, which I talk about, which come from the way my parents raised me. And that's about discipline and dedication and integrity um, and focus. And then there are things that I learned at McKinsey, um, which is really about professionalism and structure and organization. Um, and then there are other things that come from the creative part of my life, which is just, you know, we talk a lot at BOF about right brain and left brain thinking. And it's really, you know, sometimes some of my friends from business school, you know, in the early days of BOF, they, I mean, they would send me these notes because a lot of the people reading in the early days were just my friends. And they're like, it's so amazing for us to see this thing because it's such a manifestation of you, right? But as you say, that comes with risks. You know, like, how do you, how do you scale that? And I think that was one of the questions that came up a lot when we were meeting with the investors. They're like, you know, one of them in particular asked me, like, aren't you just like, isn't this just a lifestyle business for you? Like, how do you grow this thing? And my answer to him was that obviously we, were, we would need to find a way in the first instance of scaling the content because um, at the time we weren't publishing very much and, you know, there was no full-time editorial team in place. You know, we, you know, we were operating on a very rickety infrastructure. And you know, Vikram, he was, he was, you know, doing a little bit of editing one day a week in New York, and there was me in London. And you know, Vikram and I would have like a, a meeting on Friday mornings, um, New York time, and we would talk about what we were going to do the next week. And there'd be like a couple of articles. So the question is like, how do you scale that? And you know, one of the big tests was in that first couple of years when our goal was to go from a couple of articles a week to, you know, one or two articles a day. Like, could we do that and maintain quality? And I'm really proud to say that we did it. And the same principle, and how did we do that? You know, we really tried to codify a way of doing things, um, the principles that underlie why we do things and, the, you know, the reason we do things the way we do. And that now is taking place in lots of parts of the business. But, um, you know, whether that be the commercial part of the business or the product and technology part of the business, like, I'm still involved in all parts of the business. I'm, I'm, I'm the CEO and I'm overseeing the content and I'm, you know, the ambassador for this, you know, thing that, you know, I really, really care about and really believe in. But there's 75 people now, you know, and... Um, you know, you've got to find the right kinds of people and you've got to find a way of kind of immersing them in a way of doing things so that, you know, when they have to make a decision or when, you know, they're preparing a, a sales deck or they're thinking about, an, you know, article ideas, they are, have a set of principles and beliefs in mind that kind of underpin that. And, you know, in, in various parts of the company now, I can see that. You know, there's people who've been with us for many of whom, by the way, were in back in Kingly Court when you were with us, you know, Robin and Christian um, and Arsalan and Vikram and Emma, like all of these people who've been with us, they're also spreading the DNA of BOF and the way we do things because they've we've worked together for so long, all of us. And, you know, you have this next layer of people and next layer of people, all of whom become the ambassadors and kind of the kind of DNA spreaders of what we do. The fashion industry is, as Imran describes, a cast of characters, and it's also very competitive. Imran has spoken numerous times of there being too many brands. So I wanted to talk in depth about what he believes is the perfect setup for someone trying to start their own brand and also glean some insights from his years of experience. Moving on to 
help people that are kind of in the fashion industry and obviously you've got so much knowledge about it and there's so so many piles of wisdom that we can kind of gain from your insights. You were a consultant at um, St. Martin's and I believe at one point you mentioned earlier that you started this fund for fashion startups. And I was just wondering what your thesis was when it came to what you looked for in a great founding team. Yeah, so that fund was, um, you know, my mar- my first entrepreneurial foray. And the original insight um, was based on a bunch of conversations I started having with young fashion designers here in London. And I would meet them and they'd show up at the coffee shop or wherever and they'd come with like a big press book and I remember one of them in particular he came with like three press books and he was getting all this attention but he like threw his hands up in the air he's like I don't know how to turn this attention into a business like I do all this stuff but I don't know how to make it work and there's this like long-standing formula in the fashion industry where a creative person and a business person you know work together in a partnership to create a business. And there's a really clear separation of responsibility. And the idea from this fund was really to kind of take that I, that that model and scale it and you know be that support system that business insight factory for the designers. Um so that was the idea. It was like an incubator. It's like something that's been very well proven in Silicon Valley. Uh, or in the technology world, but there's something that hadn't yet really been tested as a model in the fashion industry. That was the original insight. I wanted to throw a, 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 an idea past you, and it's me, me and my friends, we're, we're not uh, fashion designers, but we kind of operate in technology and we understand funnels and uh, you know lifetime value of customers and brand building and all the kind of stuff around creating brands, but one thing we can't do is product. And I know you say there's far too many brands in the world already, but do you think that there's space still for people that look to build brands but just repurpose pre-existing clothes and then package it in certain ways, or do you feel like there's you lose some of the heart of what, what makes a brand successful in doing that? So can you explain that to me more? Sure, so... Um, oftentimes we, me and my, we, me and my friends have ideas, and we will go right. We should start a brand. What what audience would we love to serve? Um, I can, I know photographers. I uh, can build campaigns, create a vision for uh, how uh, a, a brand may exist in the world. My friend could, uh, we can run ads online. He knows how to create funnels which operate very well. So hopefully we'd get a return on. Uh, operating online as opposed to in 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 the real world and but then the one thing that we lack is any real significant knowledge of clothing so i think what you'd end up doing is you'd end up going to one of these numerous factories that produce the clothes and repurposing it but i feel like something's maybe a bit lost in that and uh, i know in the world you operate in oftentimes you're liaising very much with the designers do you feel like a brand like that can would just fall flat because I, I feel like there's a lot more of that than there are the the actual version of what happens, which is where a fashion designer meets up with a business person. I feel like there's a lot of people speculating. Yeah, I mean, I never dismiss any idea outright without, like, testing it. Yeah. Um, I think the idea of basically taking a brand that you invent or you create from thin air and then just putting it onto a product that is created by someone else. Um, my instinct would tell me that the consumer feels that. Like people, I don't know, there's something about the age we live in now where authenticity and honesty and transparency is so is so much more a factor in the way people engage with brands and like I think you can almost feel it you know you feel when something is real I don't know how to explain it I mean sometimes I talk about BOF that way I'm like I think people you know the reason people at the beginning really related to it is they understood there was like a real thought behind it there was a real person thinking about it and they could feel it here's another question that might help to put it into a clearer 
uh, viewpoint for you. I often wonder whether if you were to give advice to a, a fashion designer, would you say have a very, very clear idea in your head from the start who it is you're trying to sell this product to? Or would you say create your product and allow a tribe of individuals who you don't know who they are yet come to you? Um, you know, does either one of them make more sense? I think if you're designing clothes for someone, which is, you know, a really intimate product, it needs to fit on a body, it needs to fit into a lifestyle, it needs to adapt to a specific budget, it needs to not fall apart, um, so it needs to be made well, uh, and it needs to be distributed in a store and promoted in a you know in the media if you don't know who it is you're trying to reach whose lifestyle you're trying to fit into whose budget you need to adapt to what body types they might have what interests they might have what climate they live in what occasions they dress for where they work if you don't have that in your head in some form or another when you're creating clothing i think it's very hard to create something that's going to find magically a customer now you may find that you have one customer in mind and you discover that a customer you had never imagined is excited about your creations and that may force you to adapt or encourage you to change your approach but i always teach my students that you need to really know who you're designing for one thing with regards to fashion is obviously it has massive price variability from the fast fashion right up to high-end brands. From a business perspective, does it make more sense to, to target people with spending power or can that sometimes backfire? Yeah, I don't. I think this is a mistake that a lot of young fashion designers make, is they, especially the ones coming from top design schools. They assume that the only place in the market where they can operate to achieve their creative kind of ambition is at the luxury end of the market. And I think that's a mistake. You know, the fashion industry is a $2.5 trillion global industry. And most of that industry is not about luxury. Most of that industry is not targeted towards people who are wealthy. It's targeted at the middle classes. And the middle classes in markets around the world are continuing to grow, especially in China and India and Brazil. You know. um, so some of the biggest opportunities for fashion are, are in reaching those customers. Um, I've heard you say in prior interviews that many fashion houses haven't really adapted to digital. <clears throat> what... Uh, you know what are you looking for in terms of that transition and who which brand out there is a good example of of someone that's made a, a successful transition well i mean this is a discussion that you know we've been having on bof for literally 10 years um i wrote my first post about um technology in the fashion industry in may 2007 <laughs> and back then the challenge was very similar to the one it is now, which is more of a mindset issue. I mean, thinking about technology or digital as a kind of side project or separate initiative managed by certain types of people who sit in a room somewhere separate from the core of your business is the single biggest challenge. You know, technology needs to have a seat at the table. Technology is completely reinventing the world we live in. Uh, it's reinventing how consumers learn about brands, how they make their purchasing decisions, how they actually transact with brands. Um, and it's also changing the product itself. And if you don't have that kind of expertise around the table alongside your operations person and your finance person and your HR person, you're missing a trick. And too many businesses are still approaching digital and technology as a separate thing. You know, it's not separate anymore. It's like, you know, you know, people talk about digital marketing or digital strategy. I, I mean, I think we're at the stage now where digital is everything. 
it's you know technology is part of everything it changes every changes the way you make clothes it changes the way you sell them it changes the way you design them it changes changes everything so it's not something you can like squirrel away in the corner it impacts every single step of the value chain a perfect example of this from uh, just doing a little bit a little bit of digging i'm going to completely uh, ruin this chap's name oliver uh, Olivier Roustang. Yeah, that's I told you. I got the first name wrong. Um, but at 24, he became the the CD of um, Balma. Yeah, see, I can't pronounce these things, but I'm glad you're here to do so for me. Um, but he's a fascinating character because you know he's very very prominent on social. He talked about how he adopted a new era in time, and he just seemed like a very young protege of a type of person. But he also had extreme levels of what I would just say, chutzpah, just confidence, exube uh, that he he just radiated from him. Who else, in your mind, in terms of young up and coming designers, do you feel are changing the industry today? Um, it's hard to pinpoint just one, but there is a designer named Demna Kvesalia who has this quite um, hot brand called Vetmall, which completely disrupted the Paris fashion scene. It kind of came out of nowhere in the last couple of years. Um, and they've just approached the fashion business with a completely different business model. They've, you know, operated outside the regular fashion calendar. They've, you know, created a different approach when it came to um, the way they operationalize and create their stuff. Um, and he's just he's just very thoughtful. It's so nice to talk to a designer who's thoughtful about the business and the product. Uh, and he works very closely with his brother. And the two of them kind of are that duo, the creative and business duo. So that's one. And I think um, another designer, younger designer that I'm very um, interested in is, is Jonathan Anderson, who's now the creative director of Loewe, but he also has his own um, brand called J.W. Anderson which is based here in London. Jonathan's found a way of kind of translating his creativity and making it come alive on digital, on social. Like he's just, you know, I, I think for people of that generation, the millennial generation, you know, technology isn't something they see as separate to their life. It's like part of them. And so it's integrated in the way they research collections, the way they communicate about collections, uh, and the way they kind of build their business. Um, but there's, you know, there's lots of examples. There's even some established designers. I think, you know, it's not really only a generational thing. You know, Christopher Bailey at Burberry was very forward thinking when it came to building his brand, Burberry, uh, through digital. Um, and the people at Gucci are doing some really creative stuff with their campaigns right now on social media. So there's lots of great examples. In the final question segment of the interview... I wanted to ask Imran if he has any principles that have led to his success in life and work. I wanted to see if he's got any habits that he could point to as a catalyst for attracting other influential people to him and his endeavours. And finally, I wanted to ask what the plan is next. Having done so much, I'm interested to know where he's going from here. Moving on into the final section of the interview, you mentioned earlier about your principles and I just wanted to dig into some of the observations I have about you and, and ask you how you kind of became who you are to some degree. I've always had a fascination with people that are just really eloquent, people like, or just people that come to mind, Will Self, Russell Brand, Rory Sutherland, Stephen Fry, people that just have vast vocabularies and are really good communicators. And I consider you one of those people. And I just wondered if being a great communicator has always come natural to you and if not, how you've managed to... Uh, come about this skill over the years well i credit that and thank you that's very kind of you but um i credit that to my parents because very early on i think i was in like grade five which is like i don't know i think you're like 11 years old or 10 years old or something um one of my parent my one of my teachers in a parent teacher interview told my parents that they thought i should get some professional um, drama and public speaking training. And, you know, this wasn't something that was really common in Calgary where I grew up, but there happened to be a very 
very, very good conservatory um, for the performing arts. And um, I started taking public speaking training when I was like 10 years old. So were, you, were your family like aristocrats or something? Like... No, not at all. My, my parents were both, you know, they worked. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, it's like I said earlier, they they just exposed me to lots of stuff. And, um, you know, if someone, they also were told that I should get my singing voice trained. And they were also, you know, all sorts of things that I did. I mean, my dad kind of expected that I might become an athlete because he was very athletic and that didn't end up being my um, strong suit. So I really was a very creative kid. And um, I, I'm very, very comfortable communicating with large groups of people. I mean, I used to, when I was in choir, we, you know, and I was like 14 years old and we were in like Sydney at the opera house and, you know, I was speaking in front of like thousands of people. And, you know, public speaking is something that, you know, I think it's like one of the biggest fears that a lot of people have. But for whatever reason, um, I've, it's always, you know, I was it was trained, but it also came naturally to me. So that's one part of that. The other part of it is having a really structured, clear thinking approach. And I think that comes from my professional training um, you know, at McKinsey, you spend a lot of time thinking about how you communicate, both orally and in writing. And I think that's informed, you know, the way we create content at BOF, the way we communicate at BOF. There's some frameworks from McKinsey that I've instituted as our, the way we like pitch stories, situation, complication, resolution. That's how we, everyone in the team pitches stories based on that arc. Um, and I so... Some of it comes from, like, experience. Some of it comes from uh, a lot of practice. Some of it comes from kind of a trained, structured approach at getting your ideas out. And I think um, that's probably it. You know, I just... And plus, I like to talk. <laughs> Maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> There's another aspect to being a great communicator, and it's the fact that you're able to communicate with other people and over the years you've amassed quite a astounding network of individuals that surround you and support you uh, i know that you've held events with will i am you've your instagram just happens to have pictures of you with carl lagerfeld and a snap with uh, you know a couple of supermodels like just casual day in imran's life uh, but what's your actual approach to not only becoming distinguished yourself but also attracting these 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 people to you is it literally a case of a value exchange in the fact that you both got something to offer one another or do you have a philosophy when it comes to how you actually create connection with people i've always um from a very young age um enjoyed my interactions with other people especially if they were really different from me and I was one of those kids in high school um, who was friends with lots of different groups. So I didn't have a, my own group. I was a floater, you know. I was friends with the, you know, the drama people and I was friends with the kind of nerdy people in the IB program because I was in the IB program. And I was friends with some of the jock crowd. And I had my, like, choir friends. And, you know, I just like, I like, being around people who are all different. I don't ever, I've never been part of a clique. You know, I've never been, and I think, I think that's just because I like variety. And I think what that enabled me to do over time is to really develop a sense of empathy. You know, when I meet people, I don't like, I've never, I've never like, networked i'm a terrible networker <laughs> and you know, if you t if you put me into a room with a bunch of people i don't know i'm i'm actually not the guy who goes up to people and introduces myself and shakes their hand i'm like the guy cowering in the corner like hoping no one sees me you know i i like things to happen really organically so like the people i meet i i meet them naturally through the you know the course of my life and it might be someone I meet on an airplane, or it might be um, someone that's introduced to me, um, or it might be, you know, someone that um, I've always wanted to meet. And the, the chance, all like with Carl, 
how did I meet Carl Lagerfeld? It's a crazy <laughs> story, right? Like, I did not go out and try to meet Carl Lagerfeld. I was at a conference back in like 2008 or 9. Um, and I was walking down the hall, and it was very early days of BOF, and there was a film crew there. And the woman from the film crew stopped me and she said, Would you like to interview Carl Lagerfeld? And I said, Excuse me? And she said, well, we have access to interview every single person at this conference, and Carl was speaking on stage. And and she said, well, I, I just don't want... She was doing most of the other interviews, and she said, I don't feel comfortable interviewing him, so would you like to do it? And I had, like, five minutes' notice. And you can go on YouTube and see this interview, <laughs> and I, you can tell I'm, like, really nervous. But, you know, there's there's stuff that just happens like that, you know, and, like... It's really been an organic, natural thing. And, you know, the, the thing is when you, when you build a community of people around you, it's as much about listening as it is about telling. It's as much about being empath- empathetic and understanding who they are and not treating them that, like they're some kind of superstar, but treating them as a human being and developing, you know, really very authentic relationships with them. And, you know, if you have authentic relationships, those are the kind of relations. It's not about an exchange of value. It's not a transaction. It's really an exchange of ideas and a, finding a common, something that you share in common that you, um, you want to discuss. So that you, you know, so with Will, I am like last time I saw Will, um, we were, you know, in his amazing laboratory in Los Angeles and like, he really just wanted me to come and see his setup, you know, and like, <laughs> it was great, you know, like I got to see how they do what they do, you know, and these things develop, these, these, these things develop very naturally. I don't, I don't like, I don't like relationships that are forced. I'm just, I'm just not good at it. It just doesn't work. We've, we've gone over to some degree the arc of your career, but Obviously, so much has happened today. We started this by talking about the fact you've got an MBE and now you've built a successful company of 75 people and it's on a great trajectory. What's left to do in a sense? You know, what's the, what are some of the next steps for you in your mind? Where would you like to take things before we, we finish up? Um, as always with BOF, you know, I don't think too much too far into the future like there's always like a north star of ideas you know and the core of that is around our community and building building a service building a building value um building something that people genuinely want in their life that they make time for that's become an integral part of their daily habit um i I just think a lot about the community you know, and so everything that we've done going all the way back to the BOF 500 has always been about that community. And that's something that we're talking about a lot more in the company now that we're we've kind of got established revenue streams and business models. Um, what more can we do for that community? So stay tuned for that, because I think, you know, I think this this year is really going to be focused on our community. And there's, you know, there's always more we can do. Awesome. I've got one more question for you. Uh, but before I ask it, and also I'll share how people can maybe get in contact with you, um, we're going to pass the show over to our producer, Adam, who's going to share some of the highlights and key takeaways from today's episode. Well, thanks for joining us today, Imran, and thank you for the wealth of insight you shared with us. Here's the five actionable insights I wrote down as you were talking. Number one, writing online is great because it has no limit you can take the time you need to explore your thoughts. Number two, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable with taking risks and ambiguity. An entrepreneur's career path can be as short as a month. Number three, to charge for an online proposition, you need to tell your community why, know what they're paying for, and know how you can build it. Number four, to attract investors, start by building a brand that means something to people. A community of people who can help prove your concept and ideally pay for it. Number five, if you aren't integrating technology into your business, then you're missing a trick. It changes everything. It impacts every part of the value chain. And one additional one, with every relationship, be it personal or professional, you should always try to find something in common 
It's not about a transaction, it's about an exchange. Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate that. Uh, some great insights there for everyone to listen to. So Imran, thank you so much for being on the show. Before we finish up, I've got one more question for you. Where can people get hold of you, number one? Uh, is it a good place to be contacted? Um, best ways to get a hold of me. I mean, there's so many different, <laughs> different ways now. Um, I guess Instagram. Um, I read I read all the comments. Um, it's, it's the, it's, you know, like over the years, you know, when we started the Twitter account, we started the Facebook account and like, I don't really, I still look at all of that, but I don't actively manage it anymore. But more recently I've been, I've been a bit more active on my own Instagram account, sharing like special moments that happen <laughs> every day. So that's a good place. And what's your hand? Did you manage to get your name? I got my name, so it's just at Imran Ahmed. Perfect. And do you have any ask for the audience? You said stay tuned. I know that you do a daily roundup. Is that a good place, or a good thing that people could maybe check out? Well, the other thing that we're doing is um, on the encouragement of our team, we're doing a lot more in the our own podcast space. So... We have the BOF podcast, which we started last year, which, um, you know, has started really nicely, actually, and has had a great response from our community. And I think I'm going to be spending a lot more time on that podcast having conversations like this, but I get to do your job um, and ask the questions. Ed Imran's far more eloquent and better, oh, better no, at it than me. been great. A you've year really, in, I'm trying my best. No, you're, you're great. <laughs> Uh, so final, final, final question for you. Uh, this one is the, the, the deep one. If you could give the world one piece of advice to live a, a more happy and meaningful life, what would it be? Um, I break it into two parts. The first is really make the effort to know yourself. Um, and I don't say that lightly because it's it's a really um, important and sometimes long journey to understand who you are, what, may, what motivates you, what you believe in, what you love, you know, how you want to live your life. Um, and, you know, something we didn't talk about in this conversation is, you know, I took three months off from McKinsey and went on a meditation retreat and sat in silence for 10 days and that 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 was a moment where everything changed in my life because i i actually took the time at the age of 29 to to really figure out what i wanted you know i was on this fast track overachiever journey and you know i could be in a very very different place today not not just in terms of my career but in terms of happiness and fulfillment had i not taken that time out to really get to know myself and the second part of that journey is to not worry. When you're like young and driven and you have dreams and you know you want to do something with your life and you know you want to contribute something to the world and you know you want to do something that has impact, if you spend time worrying, it's a very unhealthy, unproductive emotion. And I used to worry so much. But what I've learned is if you know yourself and you really spend time investing in that journey of understanding who it is you are and why it is you're here and not spend time worrying about what might or might not happen or what you could have done better before or what mistakes you've made or some disappointment that's happened in your life. If you really focus on your journey of understanding yourself, um, everything will work out. It really, really will. And it's like, it's an amazing feeling to find that synchronicity between the passions you have in your life uh, and the purpose you have in your life and the career that you want to create for yourself. And if you can find alignment between those three things, it can be magical. Imran, I think that's the best answer to that question we've ever had. So I think it's a really fitting way to end. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been been amazing having you here. And thank you, Ricky, because it's, um, it's been really nice to see you 
develop since we first well, met. So it's uh, it's really nice to have this chat with you. I, I, di- I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to ruin the moment, but I mean, you experienced me go through a tough time in my early 20s and, you know, you were there for me and you basically said everything that was true in that moment in time for me. Um, and so, yeah, on top of all of this, thank you very much for helping me through that yeah, time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting, They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now.